0: continue on in our sermon series through 1 Samuel. Uh, We have been walking through it chapter by chapter over the last several weeks, and we are going to cover, Lord willing, all of chapter 6 and even the first couple verses of chapter 7 tonight. Uh, We're going to be talking about what it looks like to live a lifestyle of repentance. You see chapters 4 and 5 were all about disobedience. Chapter 4 was about Israel's disobedience, uh, the tracing back to Eli the priest. His sons ran wild, were just crazy young guys, and God punished them on the battlefield. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, uh, was then shifted from the Israelites to this uh, bunch of um, foreigners in the Philistines and so the Philistines then had the ark and chapter 5 was all about what it was like with the ark in their camp see they didn't want to honor God at all in any way they wanted him to bow down to their own idols so they were just as disobedient as the Israelites and God put them in their place but chapter 6 is about the Philistines and the Israelites now coming back around and they want um, or the Israelites they want God's presence and so we see through this chapter what it looks like to walk in repentance. They did a whole bunch of things wrong. Um, And if you see what this looks like just from an Old Testament perspective, it almost makes you kind of heart sick a little bit. Um, So we have to make sure we remind ourselves of of our reality in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it obviously changes everything when it comes to repentance and reconciliation and and restoration. And so we're going to pick through some things here um, tonight and see what what we can learn for us today. Now, let me ask you a couple theological questions. Maybe you don't ever think of this. Maybe you do. Uh, When it comes to Christians, so we're not talking about non-believers, but Christians. Do we, as Christians on a daily basis, do we need to be reconciled to God when we sin or restored to God when we sin? Nobody wants to answer that one. We, um, we don't, theologically, in that uh, you are either far from God, and so when it comes to being reconciled, it means you were separated and now you are with him. And that happens when you place your faith in Jesus. Jesus can't die a bunch of times for your sins. He died once for all and covering all of your sins. So when you go from death to life, when you place your faith in him, you are reconciled to him. Uh, when it comes to being restored, uh, you cannot be restored more than once in the sense, theologically, that you were uh, fallen from the original image that God made us in. We, in our sin, became something distorted and unpleasant, and he made us redeemed. He restored us to the original image that he created us for as children of God. He put us in that position through his son's death on the cross and our faith in that. So, on one hand, theologically, we can't be restored or reconciled more than, than simply once. Um, but it sure feels like it, doesn't it? It sure feels like we're separated from him when we sin. It sure feels like we need to be restored into his fellowship. There's a, there's a heart uh, behind it that makes us sick over our sin. Uh, let me ask you another question. How, then, does God view your sin as a Christian? Again, we're talking to Christians, not non-believers, how does he view your sin when you screw up? Like, we all screwed up today, right? some point, I'm sure we all messed up. Probably more than once. Well, he certainly hates it. It's not good. He doesn't want it. But the Bible makes it clear that through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, that God blots out our sins. That, that he forgets, he chooses not to remember our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, he takes your mistake today and he is already separated. He said, it is as far from me as the east is to the west. When he sees your sin today, just like on the first day that you believed in him, he sees his son, Jesus, on a cross, dead for you. That's what he sees. And that's amazing grace. (laughs) And so it should overwhelm you and make you think that almost seems too good to be true, that God views me that way. Like, because I, I know what I did today. I know what I did last night. I know my heart this week. And it's nasty. And God says, I view you like I view my perfect, righteous, holy son. You are found in him. So then what is our response to sin as Christians? If we know that this is, uh, this is amazing grace that we have, we need revelation. We each are on a journey. God tells us to repent and believe, but repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's not just a process you go through after you make every little mistake in your life. Repentance is a lifestyle. And there's gonna be some marks that we talk about tonight uh, because I'm not sure we always know what it looks like. But repentance is, is a lifestyle of us becoming more and more uh, sickened by our sin and yet blown away in an awe of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. This is the journey of the Christian life. This is what spurs us on into obedience. This is what makes us love God is when we um, see things from not only his perspective, but also we see what he did for us 2,000 years ago. So chapter six is all about the Israelites and the Philistines um, to some degree in, in repentance. Now, I want you to know, well, I'll go out on a limb and say, for some of us, when we screw up, right now, we, we feel like not much is changing in our lives. Like, we, we screw up, and so we, then we ask God for forgiveness, and then we're like, eh, okay, like we just go on, right? And It doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere, and I want to say there's no perfect process, so to speak, um, in repentance, but we certainly know when it looks wrong, don't we? we? We know when something's just not clicking in our minds, and we're struggling with the same sins over and over and over. We think, is that what the Christian life is? I screwed up again, God. Please forgive me. Go on, do it again. I screwed up again, God. Please forgive me. Silas, he uh, he was sick a few weeks ago, and we were teaching him how to pray. Um, we're always teaching him how to pray and what he can pray for. He doesn't know what, what all he can pray for and just helping him to dialogue with God. And um, he's used to praying for his food and stuff when we sit down for lunch or supper. But when he was sick a few weeks ago, we were, I was telling him over and over, you can ask God to heal you. You can ask God to heal you. And, you know, two years old, he, he didn't pick up very quickly that he could do that. And so he didn't do much of it. I was like, well, it's just not clicking. It's okay. But he's been healed for like a week. And now... <laughs> Today, yesterday, when he sits down to eat lunch or supper, we say, "Okay, buddy, let's pray for our food." He says, "Dear God, please heal me." <laughs> Amen. And it's like, dude, that was like three weeks ago that you needed healing. We're praying for our food now, and it's not—it's just not clicking. And it's like, okay, something ain't quite right in that. It's not bad. It's good to pray for healing, but it's like, yeah, something just doesn't feel right. And for a lot of us, when we when we see ourselves in sin and, and then we dialogue with God afterwards and we ask for forgiveness, it just doesn't feel like something's clicking. Like, there's got to be more than this. So, as we walk through this, I want you to ask yourself: is your repentance actually leading to life change? Like, is your, does your repentance end in transformation? Or is it simply lip service? God, forgive me. God, I'm sorry. Surely there's got to be more than that. So, Let's jump on in. We've got a bunch of verses tonight. If you've got a Bible, again, 1 Samuel chapter 6. And it says, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Remember, they had all kinds of uh, tumors and plagues on the land, and it was misery. They moved the ark from place to place to place for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what Shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Remember that part. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Verse 4 and 5. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Remember, they got all these tumors all over, and then they had plagues, so pestilence, mice all over. And so they're like, yeah, we'll just do mice and tumors, I guess. Um, Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Remember, they remember all about uh, the ten plagues with the Egyptians and and all that. They've been recounting that story over and over uh, through their own issues with Israel and their God. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and the yokes and the yoke the cows and yoke the cows to the cart but take their calves o- home away from them and take the ark of the lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering then send it off and let it go its way and watch if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. Struck us it happened to us by coincidence. All right, let's stop there. This is the wrong road. Now, contextually, with the whole cow thing and going up the road, we'll talk more about that here in a minute. But the Philistines, they are trying to get the ark away from their camp. It has obviously bought, brought great harm to them, and so they are, they are telling us what not to do. You see, this was common. It still is common around the world in different nations that when you sense the God of another nation, although we know there's one true God and then there's um, so-called gods, when you sense those gods are against you uh, to appease them by making some kind of uh, offering in this form it's guilt a lot of times silver bronze um, in this uh, excuse me in this instance it's gold but a lot of times it's it's other metals and so they they're unsure like is it God of the Israelites that is doing this to us or is it maybe something else so they're kind of they're gonna say hey bring the Uh, diviners who we see condemned throughout uh, the Old Testament with witchcraft and sorcery, people who could draw up the spirits and and who could commune with the gods. Um, But this was evil, and this was not something God obviously told us to do. In this case, though, we see God's sovereignty. He has a plan. This is a unique situation, and he trumps it, and and he's going to work through them. But they're like, yeah, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we just know the ark needs to go because obviously their God is against us. So the Philistines actually do a few things that, that, are, that are good. Like they, they see, man, we should bring God glory. Like there's some other things. There, there's a bunch of stuff they do wrong, but for the sake of this not being a four-hour sermon, I'm gonna just narrow it down to three things that when we think of repentance and the wrong path that we gotta focus on. So I threw them up here for you. These are the three mistakes from the Philistines. The first one, is a spiritual guidance. They, so they, they obviously go to these people whom God of Israel has condemned. Now, they might not know that because they're obviously not following this God. They don't know about the Old Testament. Um, they know, obviously, some stories in history with them. But they go to uh, these diviners who are, um, obviously, they're, they're evil. I wonder how many of us when it comes to repentance, when it comes to obedience, know that we need to do something, but we keep obedience at arm's length for the sake of seeking more and more and more and more and more and more and more more spiritual guidance. Right? Like we've felt the conviction. We know God's saying, get rid of that sin. And yet, I, I would almost be willing to bet if I was a betting man that every single one of us knows certain people in our lives that if we got junk that we need to deal with, we can go to them and the reason we go to them is because they, they help us to keep it. And we know there's pain and there's sacrifice in getting rid of it. And there's certain people among us who, who they, they, they love us too much to disappoint us. They love us too much to see us have to go through sacrifice and pain. Who are those people in your life? And, and so sometimes spiritual guidance is not good at all. It's not good at all. In the case of the Philistines, it certainly wasn't. And for us, it wasn't as well. You see, to some degree, I know this is a silly uh, bit of imagery, but to some degree, sin in our hands is kind of like a hot potato. And it causes damage. um, And there's certain people in your life or around you who are going to want you to keep it in your hands because they don't really care about the damage that it causes you. They're kind of just in it for themselves. Uh, There's uh, people in your lives um, in all of our lives who will teach you how to juggle it because they know you want that. They want You want that potato. You got it in your hands for a reason, and they don't want it to cause damage, but they don't want you to have to make the hard choice of getting rid of it. And then there's those who follow God who say, okay, you've got something that is causing damage in your life and pushing you away from God. Get rid of it. Drop it. If you find yourself going to people with any other Bit of advice other than drop that sin, you know you've gone to the wrong spiritual advisors, and of course, if God convicts you, you've got all the spiritual guidance you need. Drop it. So the second thing that they do wrong when it comes to repentance is the heart issue, isn't it interesting? You know God loves the heart; He wants to, He know, He knows what's going on in the heart, and He wants it to be revealed to us. Isn't it interesting that the only time they send the Ark of God back to the Israelites? is when things are going bad for him, right? It's after seven months of tumors and, and, and pestilence and all kinds of nastiness. That's how a lot of us do it, right? Whenever things go downhill is when we then call on God. Say, I'm ready to come back. Bring me home, Father. This is time. I mean, you're reading the prodigal son. Oh, he's running to me. This is good. I'm coming back to him. Yeah, but it's after you spent all his money, <laughs> right? It's after you went and did your own thing. You've got to ask yourself this when it comes to your heart and repentance. Are you seeking repentance because you hate sin and love God? Or are you simply seeking relief from the pain of the sin? You see, it could look almost identical. Someone seeking repentance for the sake of hating sin and loving God might look just like someone who is seeking repentance for the sake of, I need relief. I don't want to deal with these consequences anymore God I'm in a bad relationship bail me out God I have made some bad mistakes financially bail me out and everyone around you is like yes good you're back in church it's so good I'm glad you're here you've been coming to worship services looks like man things are going great for you and God's saying your heart is even more wicked than it was before (laughs) because you're trying to come and make it appear that you want me and you don't want me at all you don't want me at all how many of you, if you've been married, you know what I'm talking about here. If you, if you haven't been married, but you think you might one day, you will know what I'm talking about. If you got, a, if you're in a relationship and your spouse is kind of getting agitated with you a little bit, um, irritated with you, notice how I got to look around all you guys and I just got to stay away from this area. Um, and, and they say something like, like, um, "I will you help me with." chores around the house. Like, I just want you to help me with chores around the house. Or, or like, we don't go on dates anymore. Come, will you take me on a Let's go on a date. And so you're thinking, okay, that's the problem. Need to do more chores and more dates. Okay, let's do it. Find whatever. And then you do exactly what they ask, but something's still wrong. You're like, what's going on? So then you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig. And then finally, they get to the heart of it and they say this, <laughs> I don't just want you to help with chores around the house. I want you to want to help with chores around the house. I don't just want you to take me on dates. I want you to want to do it and not just do it because it's a task. And they took it from task-oriented to a heart issue. For some of us, that's what it's been like going back to God after our sin. Is It feels like a business transaction and not a love relationship. Oh, i got to ask for forgiveness because that's the right thing to do, right? And he's saying, I want you... I want you to come to me because you hate your sin. And you love me. Not because you grew up in church. And you saw this is what church people do. They've got their Protestant version of a Catholic confessional. So they come to you each night or whenever before bed and they say, forgive me for the stuff I did today. God's like, is your heart even in it? Is your heart even in it? You've got to protect against stagnancy in your relationship with God because a lot of us in, in, in life, uh, empty nesters, can, can speak to this. You fall in love with someone, and then you have children, and you have careers, and you work and work and work, and you're just trying to keep the ship stable for 20 years, and then your kids leave, and you look at each other, and you're like, I barely know you anymore. It's not that I don't love you. It's just that we've been business partners and roommates trying to keep this thing going for 20 or 30 years. We need to go back to what we had in the beginning. We need to to fall back in love a little bit. And the same thing can happen with God. What's your heart in repentance? Philistines was more about relief than repentance. And then the third one is practical steps. So what do they do? They say, something's wrong. Let's, let's make amends for it. Let's put together all these golden weird tumor things, okay, as a guilt offering. So they're going to they're gonna try to appease God by this guilt offering. Of course, we see guilt offerings in the Old Testament. But for us in the gospel, how many of us know that in the gospel we have the freedom. We have read Romans 8:21 or excuse me 8:1 so many times that there is no condemnation in Christ, meaning there's no guilt. He, he is not condemning you. He is not put heaping guilt on you. We know we have freedom from guilt, but yet when we sin, our avenue for repentance is I'm just going to sulk in the pain a little bit because surely this is what God wants me to feel. And somehow, deep down in my mind, I'm thinking this is going to help God be okay with me. Like God just wants me, he's, he's like a mean, twisted mom or dad who says, you know what, just sit there and, and, and feel bad for a while. And so the gospel doesn't mean anything to us because we're trying to, we're trying to sacrifice for ourselves what Jesus did on the cross. We have no room for the cross anymore because we're burying our own in an unhealthy way. How many of us sit in guilt and shame thinking somehow this is going to make God happy and he's saying this is exactly why I died for you so that you can have freedom from your guilt and shame and enjoy my presence. But you could even argue still with everything they did wrong. You could say, hey, hard to say it's the wrong road when afterwards, as far as we know, All the tumors and the plagues and the pestilence all went away. You may argument this is the right road for them. Yeah, you're right. Everybody's fat and happy. And guess what? The presence of God is gone. Everybody loses. They go back to living their old lives. And the presence of God is gone. Is definitely the wrong path. Verse 10. And the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. All right, second thing we see, now we're, we're starting to see what it, it looks like to properly um, walk in repentance, to have a lifestyle of repentance. And that is the first thing we got to see is we got to realize repentance is going to change you. It's not just lip service. Repentance is going to change you. So here's the context. Here's what's happening. They're, again, still trying to figure out if it's even the God of Israel that has caused all these plagues. They're pretty sure it is, but they're unsure. And so their way of doing it is saying, okay, we got two cows who just had babies, and they've got some just maternal instincts to hang around those babies. Those babies need milk. Mama's going to stay around them. You can take those cows away from their babies, and and their maternal instinct is going to take them straight back to the babies because they're mamas. They They know what to do. On top of that, they have never been yoked before. And so if you put then a yoke <laughs> on a couple of these cows who, who want to go and be with their babies and they're not used to the yoke and their maternal instinct saying, go back to the babies, there's a, about a hundred percent chance they're going to be all over the place and they're not going to know how to do this and they're going to be shifting. It, it is believed that Beth Shemesh was eight to ten miles away. So they're saying if somehow these cows go straight and turn neither to the left or the right, we're going to know it is the God of Israel because Everything in nature is saying they're going to come back. We put their cows over here, and they're going there. There's actually a a road that splits in two, and to the left is Ekron, and to the right is Beth Shemesh. And it says, uh, scholars believe, they, they took the cows, excuse me, the calves, and they put them in Ekron. And so they actually gave an opportunity, a very clear opportunity for those mamas to go straight back to the cows. But they went straight on Lowing all the way, recognizing like we love our babies, we want to see our babies, but there is a supernatural power over us that is making us go straight. Repentance is that, it is a, a straight and narrow path. What we want to focus on, or what I want to focus on, in these couple of verses is that God's presence went from their sinful camp back to the children. Now, we know, again, as believers, God's presence doesn't lead us, or excuse me, leave us. But what I want us to see here is that God's presence, his will, is that his presence is going to take you from your sinful behavior into greener pastures. Like It's always going to move you somewhere else. And, and I don't think we have that imagery in our minds. We think of God's presence and we think, okay, I'm coming to the throne. I got junk. I'm going to somehow ask for forgiveness. I'm going to trust Jesus and it's going to be good. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back to, to my old life. And repentance is saying, no, I'm going to I'm gonna have a change of mind Okay? That I'm, I'm wrong, and I can't do this alone, and, and God is right, and I'm going to follow him and his ways and the gospel, and it's amazing. I'm going to have a change of mind, be renewed in my mind, and it's going to lead to a change of behavior. That is repentance. And so, God's presence always wants to take you from where your sin lies to where greener pastures lie. This is why repentance always leads to life change. Something is terribly broken if you're asking for forgiveness, but you're not actually seeing life change. You know God's more powerful than that, right? You know God's more powerful. Some of us are stuck, spinning in circles. We know he's powerful, but our sin seems way more powerful right now. Real repentance is going to take you away from that sin into a new life. A new life. But that means it's going to require submission. It's going to make you uncomfortable. It's even going to mean hard work. It's going to mean you've got to shift your focus. You're going to, you're going to have to trust and depend and walk close, hand in hand, with the Lord as he leads you into a new way. Have you ever... You ever jumped into a project that, like you estimated, would take this amount of time and resources and energy, and then very quickly into it, like you realized, this is way bigger than I realized. And if I knew what it was going to be, I would have maybe never even jumped into it. I remember um, growing up, I didn't have much of a relationship with my dad's Parents, my grandma and grandpa on my dad's side. Uh, we lived 45 minutes from them. We lived in Randolph, they lived in Chapman, and then we had some family in Abilene. And, um, and so it really wasn't that far, but at best we would see them two times a year Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that's about it. And I never really talked to them much. It was always kind of awkward. When we went over to their house, we wanted kind of in and out as quick as possible. But then I graduated high school um, and I moved to Hutchinson, and I was traveling home every four or five, six weeks to see my family. And my dad wanted to bless his parents. They had a tiny kind of cracker box of a home. I mean, it was literally about the size of this cafe, uh, the whole thing. And he wanted to remodel it. He wanted to just help him out. And it started with one room. And he asked me if I, w- if I would help. I okay. And so I showed up that very first Saturday thinking I'm just going to kind of pay my dues. I should see my grandma and grandpa more often. So this is good just for me to do this. But then I got engaged in the work. You know, if you're if you're you even got like a smidgen of handymanness in you, you, when you engage in the project, like you can't just leave it and be like, well, all done. Like you you just you got to see it through. And so it went from one Saturday to two Saturdays to three Saturdays to two years like that. And for my dad, it was even longer. I found myself most Saturdays driving from Hutchinson to Chapman, spending the whole day there working our tails off and and then coming home late at night. I had no idea the amount of effort this project was going to take. But I also didn't know that it was going to bond me closer and closer and closer to family that I didn't even really know. My grandparents died within just a few months of each other, a couple years after that. And in those couple years, uh, for a good portion of it, Tara and I were in other states. So I didn't see them much after that project at all. I didn't know that at the time. That's what it's like when we jump into repentance. As many of us come to the table and we want to simply get our ticket for forgiveness punched, which we should realize we obviously are already forgiven in Christ. So it shouldn't be about that. It's not as if you 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 go and have a tragedy in the next couple of days, and at the last minute you forgot to ask for forgiveness for your latest and greatest sin. That somehow you're going to go to hell. We don't have to live in that fear, right? He's he's forgiven us. But some of us come to the station wanting to get our ticket of forgiveness punched, and God's saying, you got to get on the train. And for some of us who are struggling in habitual sins, and we feel like we're going circle and circle after circle after circle, it's because we're simply coming and getting that ticket punched, and we're missing the train. And he's saying, if you want life change, you got to jump on and see your faith lived out and through. And in the process, you're going to bond together with the Father as unpleasant as unrepentance might be because you've got to understand it's going to take work. It's going to be hard. It's going to mean you might have to change your schedule. If you're struggling with pornography, he might say, you know what, if you can't handle being alone at 11 o'clock at night, get up and go drive around the town. I don't want to do that. It costs gas money and it's cold and it's hot and it's this and that. Well, I'm telling you, we're going to make some changes. Well, I kind of just wanted forgiveness. No, we're going to get rid of this sin. It's been paid for. Now it's time to deposit it. Get rid of it. Well, I just, you don't understand. I struggle with gossip, and the ladies are at work, and so it's so hard to not be around them. God said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to eat lunch in your car. I don't want to eat lunch in my car. I've been working there 25 years. It's going to be weird if I don't. But they're in the break room. And if you can't handle being around him right now, you're going to just have to eat lunch in your car for a while. I didn't know this was going to happen. God's going to ask you to do tough things. And it's going to cost you something. But you're going to see some life transformation if you're obedient in that. If you you walk through repentance and you don't think he's going to ask you to make hard decisions, you are missing the train. You're missing the boat. And in the process, just like everything else with God, he's going to bond you. You're going to experience communion with him because you're going to have to trust him deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's going to be beautiful. Verses 13 and 14. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So now the ark is going back into the land of the Israelites. Okay, so Beth Shemesh, that's, that's the Israelites here. They see the ark coming and they're rejoicing. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites... Took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumours that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord: one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ascalon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. All right, third thing we see. As we repent, as we have a lifestyle of repentance, this is stuff we do daily is that we're going to be immersed in Jesus' sacrifice. So he, here's what's going on. Now, the Israelites. So it goes from Philistines, boom, they're kind of out of the picture at this point, to the ark is back with the Israelites. Beth Shemesh, this town of Joshua, is made up of mostly priests. Okay, So the Levites are the priests um, of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were one tribe, but they were, they were uh, to be accountable for all things. God, essentially. And so they, many of them, have have the rights, biblically, to be able to be moving um, things around and to offer sacrifices and all that. And so they do it. They do what they think is best, and that is to immediately chop up the cart came on, see a big stone, let's burn the, the, the cart, let's sacrifice the cows. They're offering sacrifices. They, they see God's presence. God has had mercy on us. God's presence is back with us. Let's do what's natural. Let's do what we're committed. Let's sacrifice. Let's sacrifice. This is obviously a huge difference to what we do now in the New Testament because we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. Of Jesus Christ. But isn't this such an easy place to slip up? Let's be honest, we get sick of our sin, we get irritated at it, and we even, we feel conviction, and then we're just like, man, I gotta do something. I'm so sick of the same old mistakes over and over and over and over, and so you got the heart that's right now, you're, you're ready to go, and boom, you're faced with the thing that you're faced with all the time. This is the crossroads of relationship and religion of the gospel and religion, of your own strength and his strength, of your own sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice, and which route you're going to take. And, and so often, don't we say, okay, I got junk going on in my life, now I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the changes necessary, okay? And what's hard for Christians is that, yeah, there is sacrifice. There are changes. It does take movement on our part, but there is a big difference between walking in your own strength, depending on yourself, and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for a lot of people, they can't tell the difference. But God knows. And your own submission and trust and dependence and leaning in on Him show whether you're trusting yourself or him. And I'll go one step further. Your stress in the situation is usually a good indicator of whether you're really trusting yourself or him. If you find yourself stressed out like crazy over and over and over as you're repenting, you're probably not leaning on him like you think. There's focus on sacrifice, but it's his sacrifice. And so I say that we've got to immerse ourselves in this. You guys have heard me say this a bunch of times, right? I'm always talking about immersing yourself in the gospel, immersing yourself in the gospel. Why do I even say immerse? There is power in immersion, right? This is why baptism, the word baptismo, literally means to immerse. It's not just sprinkle, like that's cool, but like he says, no, dunk. You are being a uh, representative. You are showing that you are going from an old life to another. You're going from dirty to clean. This is God's work on your life. He ain't sprinkling, so you dunk, because that's what it is, right? That's why those Baptists get pumped up about baptism. <laughs> but in the same way, some of us, we, we just get bits and pieces of the gospel. We hear it on Sundays. We hear it on, on Christian radio. We're reminded of it once in a while. And it's great and it's powerful, but we know there, it goes deeper, right? How many of you all have smelled a skunk on the road? Nasty, right? You can tell. From a ways away, if you have run over a skunk, it's just got a powerful smell. I knew about this because I'd experienced it. But then, when I was in high school, I, I was—I had a coat of many colors. I was—I I was a jock, but then I had an eyebrow ring, and I—I w- I was like a Metallica metalhead. But then we started a gang for a while. It only lasted a weekend. Um, so we were like little thugs in little Randolph, Kansas. Um. And, and then <laughs> I was also a hillbilly. On top of all that, I lots of things going on. Very confusing time in life. <laughs> and so for two winters, I trapped wasn't much of a hunter, fisher, but I trapped. I learned how to trap from my uncle, and I was like, I'm going to be in fur harvesting. Yeah, this sounds unique. It was great. So I talked to some farmers in the area. They let me go on their land. And so here I am, um, like a 16-year-old kid waking up at 5.30 in the morning before school in the middle of the winter. I got my little 22 pistol handgun, and I got my flashlight, and there's cows everywhere, and there's a creek bed, and it's dark, and it's cold, and there's snow. And I'm just walking through looking for my traps and looking for my animals ready to shoot whatever jumps out at me and I'm by myself and I do this morning after morning after morning and I found out very quickly that if you're not good at trapping you're still good at trapping like if you just simply put out a trap and a little bit of fish or some tuna like you will get skunks and possums all day long there's like a gazillion of them and you will be able to trap them so I trapped a skunk one week, and um, and I got close, and, and I shot it, and that was the end of it. So if you guys are all like to people, you're going to hate where this all is going. But anyway, <laughs> and then I remember a couple of days later, I saw another skunk. I trapped it, and I was staring at it, and I thought, okay, before I dispose of this here, I'm, I'm going to like analyze him a little bit. And I'm thinking to myself, as long as I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and he's facing me, We're okay. Like I don't know all about being sprayed by a skunk, but I'm thinking we're okay as long as we're looking at each other. So I get close. I get like, like about this close. Somehow, in like a split second, this little guy's hind legs flip over his top. He's still looking at me, and he sprays me like a direct shot, like more spray than you ever thought was possible. I don't know what to do. Except fall to my knees and dry heave for what seemed like an endless amount of time. Just dry heaving after dry heaving after dry heaving. I felt like blinded. It was so pugnant. Like it was it wasn't like, ew, it was like, oh I, like I can't like I was just dry heaving over and over. I didn't know I had no other natural response. It was a mess. I don't remember like like fluid coming off of me like that kind of drenched but I was in it as much as you can be in it but within like an hour I didn't smell it anymore and I was working at a car lot and I had borrowed one of his SUVs for the day and I was learning how to skin and stuff and so I took the skunk with me I came home and I walked through the house and my family was like oh my gosh what's happened to what is going on what are you doing I was like I can't smell anything anymore <laughs> long story short I, um, I go to school because I can't smell anything. We just happen to have career day. Like, all of our local heroes are there. We're all gathered together in the gym, and all the senior girls were like, oh, my gosh, he smells so bad. And the principal made me go home. And luckily, in hillbilly land, we canned tomatoes. And so, like, we, we had just all the tomato sauce, and I just laid in a bath, and it stunk so bad. But I never smelled it again. And since then, I haven't been able to smell hardly anything. Like, anything. And you think I'm joking, just ask Tara. Like, I can't smell nothing. That's what happens when you go from simply smelling something to be immersed in something. Like, it might be powerful if you are, (laughs) it might be powerful if you are, I've been looking to get this story in a sermon for years, and I'm surprised that it actually made it in, to be honest. You go from, smelling to being immersed and then when you're immersed it's going to change your life (laughs) it's going to change your life took away one of my senses i'll just leave that there so what does it mean to be immersed in the gospel well let me let me go from super light to super deep real quick. When we think of focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a daily basis, there's, there's several things theologically that are huge. And I, this is my passion for the church. Like when I think about ministry, I think of how in the world can we take people who have prayed one prayer wonders at kids camp and they don't know how the good news of Jesus actually changes the way they think and live each day. Like how can we connect that and make the gospel so practical? That is my heart. And so let me, let me make an attempt at doing that. Um, here, here's one thing, a theological term called substitutionary atonement. okay maybe you've heard of this sometimes uh, there's different words used in scripture for atonement. But the Bible says that Jesus is our atonement on the cross. In other words, substitutionary means that, that we, through our sin, deserve to die for our own sin. And he took our place. He took the place of every single one of us. One of, uh, he took all of mankind and our nastiness and said, I'm going to stand in your place. And that alone will blow your mind. You, you, you think about what kind of love when you've got all these sinners who deserve to die, and then you've got one perfect man, the only perfect man to ever walk, fully man yet fully God. He, he has his divinity, he has uh, all the fullness of God, and yet he's saying, I'm going to subject myself not only to humanity, but in my own humanity. I'm taking on flesh and I'm going to stand in their place. What kind of a love makes one man lay down his life for another when that man didn't deserve to die? And atonement means that there's a covering, okay? So when we say we are covered by the blood of Jesus, we we are covered by that holy, perfect blood. And his blood is different than our blood because our blood is still the blood of sinners. I could die for you, but it don't mean anything. But when he's perfect and his blood is perfect, it truly covers your sin. It truly covers your sin. So what does this actually mean for us? It means that you can rest in the cross and that on a daily basis, you don't need to worry about how to please God and you don't need to worry about paying the price for your own mistakes. You can stop sacrificing for your own mistakes. Like, Do you truly understand that? He doesn't want you to sit in guilt and shame. He doesn't want you to work harder or try to get to church a little more often to please him. You can't do anything anything to earn more favor from God and yet you can't do anything mistake wise to lose his favor if your faith is in Jesus Christ you can rest you can rest another one is very similar it's called propitiation okay um so first john says that Jesus is the propitiation for sin a lot of people get atonement and propitiation uh confused, but essentially, and and they are much alike. One of them, atonement, um, is kind of the positive form in saying Jesus' blood covers. It is the perfect covering of our sin, and yet propitiation um, focuses on the fact that Jesus stood in our place and that he actually took on something from God. To be a propitiation means to satisfy, and so when we talk about that, we have to talk about the cup. Y'all know what I'm talking about with the cup? In the Old Testament, we see this metaphor um, of a cup of wrath that comes from God. When you hear the cup in God's hand, um, Isaiah talks a little bit about it. You you see God's judgment and God's wrath are in this cup. and Imagery is that he pours it out on all mankind. And so Jesus in the garden says, take, Father, take this cup. But not my will, your will. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about dying on the cross and having the wrath of God poured out that all of mankind deserves, he's going to take it out. And, and so a lot of people will say, well, it, it's God's, or it's, it's Jesus' way of deflecting the wrath of God. But he exhausted the wrath of God. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. This is so crucial because some of us view God as compromising. We say he was just, he was perfect, he was wonderful, everything great, and, and he was separated from us because of our sin. And he just came down to our level. No, he didn't do that. He is just. He made us pay the price, but he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. He actually took the wrath of God. How miserable that must have been on the cross to say, it is then finished. It is finished. What's finished? The wrath had been poured out and now he gives up his breath and he's dead. To understand this in your daily life is crucial because you know no matter how bad you see your sin and as serious as it is, and it is serious and it is bad, you don't have to fear punishment from God. God is not out to get you. God does not hate you. God is not sitting back saying, you know what, I've played friendly with you for a long time, but you finally pushed me over the edge. You have finally got to the point where I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. God is saying the whole time, I love you. Jesus took all the wrath that I have. And so now I just have love for you. And he blots out our sin. Last but not least, I'll throw this one out there. Justification. This means that we have the legal standing before God of being righteous. That we standing in front of the Father, the judge, deserve obviously to pay the penalty of death. And yet he... Jesus stands in front of us and says, I'll take that. Now, here's the beauty of justification. Not only does it come just by faith, it is the grace of God, but it also is Him telling us we're righteous. It's not just Him saying, I'll pay the price. It's Him saying, I'm making you righteous. When I see you, I see my perfect Son. And if you're found in Him through faith, You have that perfection, not because of what you did good today or what you lived up to. You're perfect because Jesus is perfect, and he gives you the right to claim that perfection. God likes being around you. Do you actually believe that? He doesn't just love you. God likes being around you because he likes being around his Son. I'll say this. We don't have much time left, but I'll walk through the last one very quickly. But I, I want to share this because I, I struggled with all of this legal jargon and, and all of this. I struggled with it because, as many of you know, I have had experiences with the court system. And at 18 years old, when I was being tried um, for a felony aggravated battery while I was already uh, being tried, At the same time, for another felony aggravated battery, my family, I'll never forget it. My parents, although they don't have much money, they they put $5,000 towards the best lawyer they could find. He had a great reputation. My grandparents, who don't have much money, came in and they put $5,000 more into this lawyer. They paid him $10,000 to represent me. And I'll never forget that they paid that amount. And the faith and the trust we put in him, He was our only hope at that point. And I remember we had uh, had months leading up to it, and finally we had um, come to the sentencing time, and I had pleaded guilty to one felony and and then pleaded guilty to uh, one of the other felonies going down to a misdemeanor. That was the deal we had worked out. And so now it's all about the the judgment. And I remember my lawyer telling me, at worst, you're going to get a weekend in jail. I got this covered. And so I stood with him and I was so confident in him and my dad was back there and and the judge just started rifling off, just spewing some venom towards me and who he thought I was and just the terrible kid I must be to get in trouble for one thing when I was on trial for another thing. And I remember, I remember just being sick because it did not look like this was going to be a one weekend in jail. And I remember just blurriness almost when he said, three years in state prison is your sentence to be served with two years in the county jail and then the rest in intensive supervision probation, meaning I serve two months in the county jail and if I screw up at any point in the next three years with my probation officer, I got to serve the rest of the sentence in the state penitentiary. I was My jaw just hit the floor. I, we were not expecting that. And I turned around and I looked at my dad And I feel for him, now being a dad, he was so helpless. And he's not a crier, um, but he had tears in his eyes. And he had disappointment in his eyes. And he had sadness in his eyes. And helplessness in his eyes. And we were just flabbergasted. We didn't say a word to each other. They led me out and I just looked at him. And we were just in disbelief. And I went on to serve the sentence that I was given. And so years later... Church people are going to tell me that somehow there's a father who, who, who's judging me and that there's someone who we can actually trust and put our faith into and our, our lives given to him and that he's going to make it all work. And, and I'm not on trial for aggravated battery. I'm on trial to be put to death. It's hard to say, Yeah. But when you say yeah, you find out he's not a helpless father. As sad as that is, he's a father who, who sends his son to not only represent us, but to pay the price for us. And it'll blow you away every day if you let your mind meditate on it. Last but not least, I will make this quick. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up. The first couple of verses of chapter 7 finish out the story. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the, from that day, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented or mourned after the Lord The last thing we see in walking in repentance to make it a lifestyle is that we're going to walk in obedience. So it takes a turn for the worse. You see these men now rejoicing and celebrating. Commentators say they probably had a feast after their sacrifice. And they're just thinking, man, God is awesome. His presence is back. And 70 men die because they look at the ark. Knowing they're not priests, they don't have the right, and they let their guard down. You see, they got lazy. They got lazy thinking that God has somehow compromised his holiness to come back into our camp. And sometimes we do the same thing, thinking, man, if I can simply as a believer just ask for forgiveness anytime, and God has already forgiven me through Christ Jesus, then like things are good. And in that, because we don't see Jesus on the cross right in front of our face, if we just walk on, we'll find ourselves starting to discount the power of the cross, and we'll start to think, God, maybe just... Isn't that serious about sin? And God's saying, I am still holy. That's why people who, who hear about grace, one of their first instincts, if it's an unholy instinct, is, well, why do we even have to repent from sin? Why not just keep walking in it? Because you don't understand grace. And you don't understand the sacrifice. See, when you trust in your own sacrifice, like they did, you let your guard down, you always find out it's not enough. And apart from the cross, those 70 men who look upon God and die instantly, that's every single one of us. Apart from the cross, that's every single one of us. So repentance and a lifestyle of it is going to lead you to focus on his sacrifice and to be blown away by it and to have a, a displeasure and a hatred towards your own sin. And your heart is going to align with the Father's heart. And it's always going to leave you to be in awe of God. It's always going to lead you to be in awe of God. And so in the power of his spirit, he's going to tell you, get up and walk. Don't take my commands lightly. I am still holy. And don't, don't, because it sounds too good to be true, don't fall into the temptation that you can do whatever you want now as a believer. You're going you're gonna to want, you're going to desire To want to obey me are you falling in love with obedience do you love repentance some of us I hope every one of us is a disciple maker that we have people we're pouring into but if you find yourself believing you're a mature Christian here tonight and you find yourself more concerned with the obedience of those you're pouring into than the obedience behind closed doors in your own life something has gone wrong and that's easy to do Let me end with this. When we come before the throne of God, we don't walk out feeling like we just walked off a used car lot and got a really, really good deal and we're smirking thinking, man, I'm glad I got that. When we stand before God daily, if you want to live a lifestyle of repentance You realize daily that you desperately needed to be rescued and that you were as good as dead and that a hero showed up in the name of Jesus Christ and you are in awe of his power and love. You meditate on that. You chew on that day in and day out. You will see transformation. You will see transformation. Let's pray.